Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garrett. Today's topic is Martin Luther King Jr. This is part two of the series, so make sure that if you haven't listened to part one yet, that you do so. It'll be really helpful in the start of this conversation, moving along into this one you're about to hear. We first go over the rhetoric that people in MLK's day and even today used to discredit him, what he actually fought for, the FBI's involvement in his story, and why his legacy matters. We hope you enjoy the discussion. I think that a lot of this was just a lot of what people, the rhetoric that people use today to shoot down any of like the figures um, in in African, you know, in black American history, which is American history. We have to realize that it's part of propaganda machine. So Jim Crow wasn't just a practice. It was, it had intentions and purpose. And that was to like oppress and keep black people in their place. But after the civil rights movement was passed, of course, then the Southern strategy happened. And that's where Thurman um, and Nixon, they helped develop that Southern strategy in, in 72. And well, and in 1972, Nixon won every Southern state. So there, you know, everybody wants to talk about, you know, Repu- the Republicans freed the slaves and the Democrats are the, you know, whatever. But the Democrats should But there was a from- realignment of the... Exactly, of the party. And so... There has to be this propaganda because there was this fear that there would be, like we talked about with the uh, Malcolm X episode, there was a fear of a black messiah, a single black figure, male figure that would mobilize black people. And so there's this criminalization and delegitimization of those figures, Megar Evers, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and there's so many other names that... Nobody knows, most white people would know, and some black people don't know, where, you know, they have to undermine you. Mm-hmm. And that's like calling MLK a communist, that that just worked. Mm-hmm. And it stuck mm-hmm. for people who still want to weaponize him against black people to keep us in our place, but then espouse their hate against him because he was a so-called communist. Mm-hmm. Which again, he wasn't. He just wanted... Right. More opportunity exactly. for black people. Wanted a higher minimum wage. I wanted to like lift up the the bottom of right. the economic, you know. Spectrum. And why wouldn't he want that yeah. for people who were enslaved, who were kept from having jobs, who you know had to be indentured servants, um, mm-hmm. sharecroppers? Why would he not want that for his people? Yeah, like I think it's a popular argument on. That like that spectrum I said earlier. Anyone who's like on the, you know, capitalism feudalism side of that spectrum, like the people who are basically the people who have the power in any society are always going to want to play with the existing rules of the game. Because mm-hmm. if I have the power in the current system, 
I want to conserve that system. Mm-hmm. The people who don't have power in any game are going to be the ones who want to change the rules so that they can have an advantage. They're going to want, to, and that's going to be the progressives of any society. So in any society, not just American politics, but look around the world, it's always going to be the conservatives wanting to keep the current system, the 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 progressives that want to like change the rules to make it more fair or to make it more equal. And so, and and I think that there you can have problematic extremes in in both sides but there's that tension in every society some some existing rules are good and some aren't good and some should be changed and some shouldn't be changed in any society so i'm not trying to just say like one's better or worse but that's going to be the dynamic and for for mlk he existed regardless of what you think of politics today he existed in a day and age when i think we can all pretty much agree that it was like completely imbalanced, unfair, broken system. And so, of course, he wanted to move things in that direction of a, towards the middle of the spectrum to being more equal and uh, more opportunity for more the poor. Equitable, of course yeah. he wanted that. And that was mm-hmm. the right thing. We can look back from today and see like, oh yeah, that was the right thing when we see how broken the system was back then. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, people on the right side of that spectrum called him a communist because that's, what that's what's at the far extreme of that direction Absolutely. of the spectrum. And so if you call him that, that's like an effective way to just say, say like, what he's saying is scary and invalid. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's like, if we actually pause to think about this, moving to the middle of the spectrum isn't scary. First of all, that's where most developed countries are, is more towards the middle than America is right now. Right. And, and leveraging privilege isn't scary. Yeah. And for it, the underprivileged. And of course, the one side's going to call the other side fascist, and the other side's going to call the other side communist. Or, you know, like we're going to, like people are always, people at the extremes are always going to use big words to try to scare people into coming to their view. But for our listeners, I just challenge you guys to just like stop being scared of the terms and just think about what kind of world do I want to live in? Mm-hmm. Do I want to live in a world where power is distributed, where like, one percent has one percent of people have ninety nine percent of the power, or do I think it would be a better world to live in if power were more evenly distributed? I don't think power can or should be completely evenly distributed because again, that breaks down. That has to be enforced by someone, which requires power. Mm-hmm. So that's impossible. But how unbalanced should it be? And I think most reasonable people can say like, no, I think it should be like fairly balanced. Yeah. And right now. In MLK's day, it was completely imbalanced, and even still today, right. it's very, very imbalanced. And ec- economic inequality in America has grown drastically, even in the last 20 years. I think it's like multiplied fourfold, which means the percentage of wealth held by the richest people is uh, four times higher now than it was like 20 years ago. Right. And it's like, do we want to keep moving in that direction? And who, you know, who were the the benefactors of that? There were benefactors of that, and there were people whose blood, sweat, and tears built that and created that and and aren't receiving any of the benefits of that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and, I, and I think, like, most people, like like what you said, those big words, a word like communism, feudalism, those are, like, scary words. And the news is not only banking that those words are scary to you, but they're banking on you not knowing like, right. what those words actually mean or like the spectrum, what you talked about. They're banking on you thinking one is right and one is wrong, which they're essentially lowering the bar, like thinking that you're not going to do any research. They're assuming that you're not going to be smart about mm-hmm. the things that they're talking about. I mean, so if you're on an, if you're wherever you're getting your news, if they're constantly throwing out communism, communist, Marxist, or they're 
they're just constantly throwing out feudalism, capital. Like you at some point should just for your own good, (laughs) learn the spectrum and not just believe everything that comes out of some news organization that's throwing out these extreme terms. If, if I ever hear an extreme term from anybody, I'm almost like, oh, this is a little, that's, it's almost like back up, pause. Why are they using that extreme word? Mm-hmm. And odds are they're just probably thinking that the listener isn't going to be smart enough or want to do the work to learn. And so you're just easily, you're just turning to sheep. Mm-hmm. And then the news, you know, the people with power understand that. So the people with power want to keep their power. So they're going to say extreme things so that you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to learn. You don't have to actually like want justice or, you know, there doesn't need to be the inequality. I don't need to fix that because they're bad people. It's, it's, It's this weird balance of like, if you fall into that, you're just falling into the trap that they think that you're dumb. Yeah. And that you're not going to do anything about it. That's what happens with most people on both sides of the spectrum. Just a, a thought is like, well, how is this a moral imperative? Or how, like, what does this really matter? Is this something Christians should care about? Is this something that people who just like consider themselves to just generally be moral should care about? I, I think clearly, yes. I think economic justice is important and it leads to all other kinds of justice. Mm-hmm. Like, people, if people have economic power, then through that economic power, they're going to have access to all kinds of other sources of justice. And and if you can take away economic power from a group, as happened in slavery, then you can take away every other kind of power. And then the other thing is just in the Bible, there's only one set of national laws that God ever instituted. So like, if we're trying to figure out what he thinks about this stuff, like we have one example to look at, and that's the laws that he set up in Israel. And y'all, like the laws in Israel had a giant social safety net. Yep. I was just about to talk about that. Go ahead. Let let me list off some of this. Like the Bible had a, a system where every 49 years there was a year of Jubilee. Yes. And so land was redistributed evenly across the whole society every 50 years. Mm -hmm. So however far economically you got behind in that time, it was just like a reset button every 50 years where the land was redistributed evenly. So you couldn't drift too far down the spectrum towards feudalism. It just like was not even a possibility. Also, every seventh Seventh year, year. Mm -hmm. the land... All the fields were supposed to just not be planted, not be farmed. People, the farmers were supposed to rest, and whatever grew in the fields on that seventh year, they were supposed to allow just immigrants, the poor, orphans, widows, like the the people in society who were like the protected classes, could just go and just harvest whatever grew in the fields. Mm-hmm. Also, every three years, they were supposed to um, tie the tenth of the produce of like their harvest to, to the poor and orphans and the, the needy. Every year they were supposed to only pass over their fields once. So when it comes yep. to harvest time, anyone who's a farmer knows this intuitively, like your fruit doesn't all ripen at the same time. It ripens, like some will ripen early, some will ripen late, but there's this peak where it's mostly ripe. So there was, God's law said, you can only harvest once and then anything that ripens later is to be given away to just anyone who needs food, mm-hmm. like the poor, the orphans, the widows. Also, they weren't supposed to glean the corners of their fields. Right. And think about this. The Bible doesn't specify how much of the corner you cut off to give to the, the orphans and the widows and everything. Yeah, yeah. If you want to take that, like, and so people, farmers would be like, well, do I just like 
just leave a little bit, little tiny corner, just like do a little curve at the end, or do I do like a big old corner? And if you want to take the law to the extreme, the way you would, the only way you can know for sure that you're like following it is basically you har- you harvest the circle in the middle, and you leave these big old corners. And not the people did that, but it's like God's like the amount of generosity that God is calling for there is a little bit ambiguous, but He's calling for this generosity of leave the corners of your field unpicked so that. Again, and he specifically lists immigrants. Yes. Um, that orphans, the widows, immigrants, and the poor, like over and over again, those are the four classes of people that are described as having these like social protections. In addition to like laws about like redeemers, laws about the poor receiving equal justice in the courts. Well, and I want to talk about like, because basically the overarching thing that we see in the Bible is a leveraging of privilege for the underserved. Mm-hmm. We see that as a repeated theme throughout the scripture, including, again, Jesus himself leveraging his Godhead, like leveraging his own privilege mm-hmm. as God to be housed in underprivileged skin. People want to play up so much this. He was, you know, a line in the tribe of Judah, and he was, you know, the son of David. Like, Jesus... He might have been the son of David, but he have David's money. Mm-hmm. And people, and they, they just totally exploit this whole thing about Judas carrying the money, collecting the money, or whoever was co- called to collect. But that, like, it, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't riches. Mm-hmm. That, that was just whatever coins they had. He kept that little, that little purse of money. That, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If he was collecting that much money, why he go sell G- G- Jesus out for, you know, 40 shekels? If if they were if they were you know stacking that much paper, he could have just taken what was there and gone on. But they they built like it's so crazy. They want Jesus to be so rich. Even the gifts that Jesus was given, frankincense, gold, and myrrh, they were more of symbols of his life, death, and resurrection. They weren't like we finna like just throw all these you know lavish him. But the thing is, is that there's a leverage of privilege for justice. That's an overarching thing throughout the scripture. We're talking about David and Saul. When when Saul died, David made room for an heir from Saul's from the house of Saul as an act of compassion. Esther, Mordecai basically was like, you better leverage this even though you were sex trafficked, Esther, let's keep mm-hmm. it real, but leverage this privilege of being in the king's house for the sake of your people. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's for this being con- oppressed. Right, for being oppressed. There's a consistent theme of leveraging privilege. So this is not something black folks made up because, you know, we we want what White mm-hmm. people have, which really should be inherently, inherently like we should share that wealth because we built it. It yeah. was built on the free labor of our 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 ancestors. Like this is an overarching theme in the scriptures that cannot be denied. Yeah. Or how about this? Like this is too much of a pattern to to deny. Like just and this isn't race. It's like a form of privilege in that context was birth order. Yeah. If you were the oldest son, you were given a double portion of the inheritance. So the the favored one, the one that would inherit the family, patriarchy, the line, was always going to be the oldest son. Oldest sons were favored, had privilege in mm-hmm. that in that context. Mm-hmm. 
So you would expect then, if God is generally, if his heart is going out to and he's favoring the favorable, then you would expect that generally he would move his promises through oldest sons. That would be the easier way to do it. That would be the intuitive way to do it. That would be the way that would, would be expected in that context. And yet, if, as you follow the, the Bible storyline through the Old Testament, it's too much of a pattern to even deny. Like God always, with like, maybe there's an exception somewhere, I can't think of it, uses younger sons, like he, he, or, or women who were <laughs> even more disfavored. But I mean, Joseph, I mean, going all the way through like Cain and Abel and then, and then Seth and then Shem and then Abraham was a younger son and then Isaac was a younger yep. son and then Jacob was a younger son yeah. and then Joseph and Judah yep. were both younger sons to Reuben. And then moving on down the line, like choosing the short David who was, a younger son yeah. over the tall, the like, youngest, the king who you would expect in Saul. Mm-hmm. And then David may even have only been like a half son because he wasn't even brought forth when the other sons were initially brought forth. Right. And there's uh, some hints that he maybe was uh, by a different mother. So maybe, maybe only like a half son uh, or half brother to his other brothers. So like God, then David's son, Solomon was a younger son, yeah. <laughs> was not yeah. the oldest. And you can just go on down the line all the way through God's like constantly choosing and even in Jesus's genealogy, uh, highlighting these four women, I think at least three of whom were immigrants. Yeah, and one um, was a prostitute. Yeah, who God is deliberately choosing. You cannot deny that God is deliberately choosing the disfavored ones. And one was from a a heritage of like a people of incest, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know Ruth. Mm-hmm. He's choosing those who, and, and the Bible says this directly in the New Testament. It says God chose, chooses those who are weak in the eyes of the world to show off his strength and chose those who are poor in the eyes of the world to show off his riches. Like God is deliberately choosing them so that he can show that he has a different way. Right. His way is a way of like using power to humbly uplift. And that's the, Jesus is like the pinnacle example of that in leaving heavenly riches. And kind of something of a summary just to, I mean, we've, in this conversation, we've talked a lot about like the substance of the issues that resolved, uh, revolved around MLK, but just to fill in some of the gaps of some of the episodes of what he went through. Mm. He, was, he was shaped early on by the fact that he, uh, he initially, while he was in college, fell in love with a white woman who was an immigrant's, daughter. Mm -hmm. And he was basically told, it's going to sink your career in both the white and black worlds if you marry a white woman. Like You're not going to have an opportunity to be a problem for pastoral ministry. You will not be listened to by the white world. And, And that injustice of like, why should this matter? Like, I'm in love with this human. Like, Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. is this, like, not an option because of, like, the world, the system, and the racism around me? And and that that had just a profound impact on him, as I'm sure, like, there's so many stories, I'm sure, of people in that era who fell in love and had to walk away from people they cared about because of the color of skin. Yeah what interracial marriages meant back then. But then later on after that, he met um, and married Coretta Scott King. Mm-hmm. And they got married in 1953 at her parents' home in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Pretty early on, they, MLK got the pastorship at, at the church that he pastored and was appointed through that kind of in a, a fairly just kind of providential thing that he happened to be appointed to lead the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things where God just kind of put his thumb on the scales of history. And oh, yeah. um, because there was just this meeting where it just kind of like organically arose that he would be put in charge. And so much of history has been shaped by that like mm-hmm. small incident. So he's put in charge of the Montgomery bus boycott and 
that, I mean, we could do a whole episode on the Montgomery bus boycott. It was just a really powerful moment where, I mean, Rosa Parks, everyone has probably heard her name, that she like wouldn't get up from the bus. But then through that, the city of Montgomery basically like unanimous boycott of the whole black community of the bus system in this incredible solidarity where for more than a year, the black people stopped using the public bus system because they wouldn't uh, weren't allowed to to sit in an integrated way on the buses and the the implications of that was like they were the 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 people who were leading the boycott were there was all kinds of injustice and oppression that happened to them 120 of them were indicted for leading a boycott of the bus system which i mean how crazy is that that the government indicted and gave criminal charges to 120 leaders of this boycott mm-hmm. because they boycotted the buses. Mm-hmm. And then, but then the black community went and gathered outside the courthouse and one by one, those 120 uh, men and women who had been indicted just walked and, and they, like, they turned it on its head and they turned it into like a walk of celebration mm-hmm. that you almost like this idea of you're being honored with to like, to suffer for like this loving good and right cause. Mm-hmm. And so they walked into the courthouse with heads held high and the this crowd just like cheered as they went in and got booked and paid their bail, and then the it drew all kinds of media attention and a flood of donations to the boycott, and it backfired completely on the city officials. Mm-hmm. But then there was uh, also the incident we talked about earlier. MLK was pulled over and arrested for driving five miles an hour over the speed limit. His home was bombed. He the all kinds of just like racial slurs and clan type activity throughout mm-hmm. happening throughout the whole thing. The police in general in Montgomery started pulling over the black drivers who were they created like this carpool. Yep. Where they got um hundreds of cars that just like signed up to just drive people all day and uh, take people around. And the police started to uh, ticket and pull over the carpools just to try to get them not to continue the boycott. Uh, there also is this th- these funny stories of how White women were so desperate for black maids to come and clean their homes that they would start to drive them, and it was just funny because in the black community they would just joke around about that, like basically the the irony. Of yes, you are too racist to let us ride with you on buses, and so you're going and picking us up in your car and driving us to come and work for you. Yep, <laughs> just the irony, self-inflicted wounds of racism, and then the the boycott. There was also these funny instances where, like at one point, the newspapers just all led with a story that the boycott, or they actually got an early tip. MLK found out that, like the day before, that the newspapers were going to announce that the boycott had ended and had resolved because three high-ranking leaders, pastors leading the movement, had uh, negotiated a settlement. And MLK was like, "I don't know anything about this. We did no the the boycott's not ending." And they come to find out that the newspapers had basically found three country preachers who weren't even involved, mm-hmm. who they dragged in for a different reason mm-hmm. and then had them sign something as part of like some other, like they, they didn't even know what they were really doing so that they could then announce that the boycott was ended in hopes that it would just like dispel the thing. And so MLK and the other leaders of the boycott like worked feverishly through the night contacting all the pastors and had them all preach in their Sunday morning sermons that the boycott was not ending and that, that was like a false ploy. So there's all kinds of all kinds of craziness. Like I said, we could we could maybe go into it more in a future episode. There's there's a lot there, but it was just incredible the way that the the solidarity of how people walked miles and miles and miles. 
yeah. day after day after day, yeah, for more than a year, yeah, to demand the right something as simple as just like being able to sit where they wanted to sit on a bus. On a bus. But the it wasn't really about the sitting on the bus. It was about I need like the the demanding of dignity of being dignity. like a yeah. human. Mm-hmm. And they won. The Supreme Court ruled in their favor, and they won the right to and had chipped away at the laws of segregation in the South. And, and what a debt we owe. Yeah. Like the America we live in now is so indebted to like the bravery, the self sacrifice, the committed the commitment to nonviolence of the the people who walked like uh, you know millions of miles were walked so that we yeah. could live in this America. Yeah. And just what a debt we owe. And MLK was just the leader of that movement and was it was his commitment to nonviolent demonstration that like helped to fuel and inspire and empower that movement to happen. So that rose him to national prominence and then in the wake of that he was the first president of the SCLC the um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Yes. That Basically, leveraged the success of the Montgomery bus boycott to like continue to become a bigger and bigger movement throughout the South and, and fight for civil rights. With John Lewis, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then they uh, continue the fight in Alabama. Um, one thing that's worth highlighting is that MLK received all the same criticisms in his day that mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement receives today. Yep. Just like they were accused of being Marx, uh, like today there's the accusations of Marxism and everything, and of, like he, MLK was accused of like starting riots and uh, starting like uh, of using violence, even though he was known now for being committed to nonviolence. At the time, he wasn't seen that way; seen as like this troublemaker. Yeah. Uh, the the Georgia governor Ernest Vandiver expressed open hostility towards him and said, "This is a quote: Wherever MLK Jr. wherever MLK Jr. has been, there has followed in his wake waves of crimes." So he was just like opposed in in that way. They would just like try to say like he's pretending to care about nonviolence as uh, cover for like all this criminal activity that he's actually stirring up. The Birmingham Police Department, led by Eugene Bull Connor used like in, in the civil disobedience in Alabama, used high pressure water jets and police dogs against protesters. Many white people today will have seen some of those photographs of these high pressure water jets being used. And they're even against black children that were brought in to like participate in those protests. Mm-hmm. And then the footage of that went out throughout America and throughout the world. And at broader context, what was happening back then is there's this whole fight against communism and communist countries are using the footage of American injustice of these fire hoses spraying these kids to shame America and to show like these countries that are trying to decide, do we want to go capitalism or communism? The communist countries are saying like, showing this footage like, look, Here's non-white people being sprayed with fire hoses. That's what America is doing. And so that created a lot of pressure on America. And part of why the civil rights movement was successful was because of sympathy of white people who just realized how bad racism in the South was. But part of the success was also because America had to clean up its act mm-hmm. so that communism wouldn't have this like propaganda campaign to keep running. And so then all of this kind of like continued and culminated in the March on Washington where MLK made his famous I Have a Dream speech that he's probably no, most known for. They, they had demands including that they wanted to end school segregation to like to actually end it. It was like a long process. Uh, schools 
continued to be segregated into the 70s and even to today, there's like a ton of school segregations. They want to end that and to have meaningful civil rights legislation, including a law prohibiting racial discrimination in employment, protection of uh, civil rights workers from police brutality, and a $2 minimum wage, which would be $17 an hour today, adjusted for inflation. And they also want self-government for Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. has, uh, like I think, the highest percent per capita black population in America. And they had, at that time, they had no self-government. Um, it was just a congressional committee that governed Washington, D.C. So despite all, all the tensions that, that happened through the march, there it was a resounding success. More than a quarter of a million people attended the march, and, and it, it helped to create the climate that then resulted in some real change. Mm-hmm. We've already kind of touched on the FBI just sev- severely crossed boundaries to persecute and and ran propaganda and misinformation campaigns illegally wiretap. Well, technically it was a legal wiretap at the time because it was signed off on, but it was super unethical and unjust and unconstitutional. So I guess I guess illegal in that and sense. like every time something like where the FBI does that, even with Malcolm X, like nothing ever happened. Right, there's no accountability. Those people, oh yeah, for the FBI, are probably still alive today. Mm-hmm. That were a part of that, and there's nothing, yeah, nothing it, that will ever be done. Yeah, for those, no, no rest, restoration or yeah, you yeah. know, I don't know that there's ever been any kind of apology. Maybe there was at some point, but but yeah, there's no no recourse for that. And so yeah, the F, the FBI put editorials in local newspaper, including quotes like. Revan King is more dangerous than Stokely Carmichael because of his nonviolent masquerade. He continues to talk nonviolence even as violence erupts all around him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that quote is incendiary, mm-hmm. but if it was coming from a person, it'd be like, yeah, there were racist people. But it's coming from the government. Right. It's coming from the FBI, is running like a propaganda campaign, which is also not true. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it is true that in the that there were instances of black people in self uh, like using self defense, and, and there were times, even despite the the strong commitment of the SCLC to nonviolence, there were instances where white police officers would be beating up a black protester and they would defend themselves, which is completely understandable. Like, I don't know whether I could stand that test of continuing to be nonviolent in the face of right. Of the the treatment that they had, so there were those instances, but those were then used as propaganda to say like this is actually violence. When really, like in the the broad scheme, like the police officers were way more violent towards the protesters than any self defense that like instances of self defense that occurred. Mm-hmm. Then in his final years, MLK kind of a lot of the civil rights movement had been like relatively successful in overturning legal. uh, like legalized segregation and forms of race, like legal forms of racism Mm -hmm. were largely removed, but there was still a ton of just systemic injustice that was just kind of like a residual effect of the system that had been there for so long. Yeah, it just evolved. Yeah, it Mm -hmm. it just evolved. And so MLK turned his attention towards some of that evolution by working for more uh, economic justice Mm -hmm. and, and was considered a threat to the status quo by pretty much anyone who... In the government and elsewhere, who had held the power in society, so he was not seen. He he did not have majority approval of white people when he died. Like right. most people thought he was a troublemaker, thought that he was secretly violent, thought that he was probably Marxist or communist. Like he was not seen favorably even up to his death. And even by some black people who were, they were just so afraid. Mm-hmm. Out of fear, they you know they were many were coerced to hate him or hated him. 
just out of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're afraid that like if if he's too toxic in the eyes of white people, then should we distance ourselves from him so that we're just like the complexity of that 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 they had to figure out how to navigate. But then he he was assassinated um, at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis in 1968. It was kind of in the wake of the, the there was like the planning for the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah, where he was going to like demand kind of more economic equality and rights for workers. So he was assassinated, and his death was followed by riots all across America. There was like so much. I mean, just like the exhaustion that Black people have today. I mean, like. Think of like in that context, there was like Malcolm X had just been assassinated, and then MLK was assassinated, and there was like this progress mixed with like so much opposition and just like the amount of exhaustion, and then just riots just erupted. Like, here's this man who's just such a example of humble willingness to sacrifice for like this cause that is right, and for him to then be assassinated. Well, and he even said, um, Martin Luther King said that rioting basically it's like the language of is the, the language of the unheard. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that his assassination sparked, added to the spark of the Black Power movement. Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting fact that Samuel Jackson was one of the pallbearers of Martin Luther King. He also attended uh, Morehouse College, but he was angered by, like men, so many were, by Martin Luther King's death that then that's when, again, like just different forms of like the black power movement um, or empowerment movements just across the country after the riding. Um, mm-hmm. And so Samuel Jackson actually uh, participated with a group because the, the King family they were like um, Martin Luther King's father. Um, he was on the board of trustee board of trustees with Morehouse, and Morehouse is an African American um, historically black college. And Samuel Jackson was with a group that held Martin Luther King's father hostage on the campus at gunpoint <laughs> because they were trying to make some demands toward a more uh, toward a uh, for a, an Afro or African-American curriculums or studies curriculum and just some other demands. Now, many of their demands were, were ended up being met. I mean, there were many changes at Morehouse, but then Samuel Jackson got kicked out of school. But then he basically got to come back and he studied theater. Mm. And so that's just an interesting fact. Uh, so then, yeah, also in the, the wake of the, the assassination, well, two other things to say is that... Um, the the actual person charged with the assassination, um, James Earl Ray. There's been like just ongoing kind of conspiracy theories and yeah. a lack of transparency about what, what exactly precipitated that assassination and whether the government was involved. And so I don't think at this point that we'll ever really know really fully what happened there. But just to know that there's like some cloudedness about whether it was something that the government knew of or participated in or whether it was just uh, completely independent. But given what the FBI was doing in that day and the uh, COINTELPRO and Hoover and how like corruptly they were acting, I, we've said in a previous episode that the government deliberately tried to start like, tried to get the Black Panthers into like like a bloody fight with one of the gangs in Chicago. I mean, they were 
deliberately trying to like get people killed, it would not be completely surprising if they were involved. But and even um, Martin Luther King's family didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his own son was, right. fought for a, a, a jury trial for uh, James Earl Ray mm-hmm. after like mm-hmm. later on because they they were not fully convinced there. So there's cloudiness there that I mean we might not fully get an answer to. And then, and then the last thing is just like the story of uh, Coretta, uh, Coretta Scott King, and after Emelka's assassination, just did such an incredible amount of work for many years um, to fight for uh, Martin Luther King holiday to be established. Yeah, and as part of that, it's just this like large and growing movement that it, she organized seventy six coalitions, gathered five million signatures, and lobbied every member of Congress to get the MLK holiday established, and. There's like good and bad sides to that. The good side is that obviously he was worthy of the honor. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad that we established the the holiday so that he would be remembered for so much contribution to the, the world we live in today. Absolutely. The sad side is just to recognize that like even that honor was partially given to him because white people wanted that the the people in power we're worried about the Black Panther movement. We're worried yep. about Black nationalism. We're worried about a more like militant protest against racial injustice in America. So they wanted to honor MLK because of his commitment to nonviolence, in order to basically try to encourage more like don't be violent. So even there was like even the f- the fact that we have an MLK holiday, I think probably is only the case because of that. But Still, I mean, we'll take the wins we can get. I have a story that kind of, I think is really, you know, really wraps this up. I don't know if you have more, but I really want to tell this quick story. I had a cousin who passed away in 2017. And I had to quickly, She was. she's much younger than I am, more my sister's age. And she passed away suddenly. I flew in to Memphis. On the flight, I met this man by the name of Gary Bird. And he was an older white man, and we were both, he, we ended up sitting beside each other. And he <laughs> was so talkative, and I was like, Lord, I just want to get to this funeral. I don't want to talk. I don't know what's going to come out this man's mouth. I'm not, I'm not in the mood. But he engaged me in conversation, and he asked me, and this was really making me mad, because he was like, what do you think about the Confederate statues? And I could have literally like slid out of my seat. And I was like, I, I don't want to deal with this. And I said, well, what do you think about it? He said, well, it's not important what I... He, he, and he, he became very humble. He was like, actually, it's not important what I think about it. Because I could think all these things, but it's important what you think about it. And so... I was like, all right, white man, I'm finna, okay, we gonna talk, you know? (laughs) So we start talking, and he tells me that he, his dad, um, you know, he he grew up in Memphis. And when he was 14 years old, in the 60s, like a teenager, he had this paper route where he made a little change. And he said there were these black men that would come, um, they were sanitation workers, and they would collect their trash. And he would be so excited every time that he saw them. And so he set this thing up with his dad where he could go and he would serve them food. So they would make a stop in front of his house and he would serve them, which I think is another huge deal, especially in the 60s, right? So he built a relationship. Like he saw them as like these these guys, these sanitation workers, they were like heroes to him 
for some reason. Hmm. And he would engage in conversation with them. And he said that he found out just over this period of time that he he had like some paper route. He found out that he made more money as a 14-year-old on a paper route, little part-time or after-school job, than these sanitation workers made. Like he made three or four times more money than they made. And they had, he said, and they had wives and they had families. Hmm. And so then I began to share with him and he, he was very, like, he was a godly man. He was such a godly man. And he ended up, he was like, where are you? I told him I was going to my cousin's funeral. And I was like, time is, I'm, I'm going to have to jump on an Uber. He was like, well, I'm taking you to, the air, to your, I was like, now listen, you're not going to kill me on the side of the road. I'm not falling for this okie doke. Like, you know, I'm just, I'm just like, nope. He was like, I'm absolutely taking you to the funeral. He's like, you need to get there on time. He was like, here. Take my picture. And he sent, he texted me his driver's license. I'm looking at the driver's license, making sure it's him. I texted it, and I would never do this, but I texted it to my family in a thread because it was a moment by moment, like, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm getting on that plane, you know, because everything was so, I was late to the funeral, a little late. But I was like, there's this man, his name's Gary Bird. Here's his driver's license. He lived, come to find out, he lived behind my uncle, my, my great uncle in the country where my mother grew up. He, he lived in the, in, the, in the community that my, you know, because it became more gentrified and more white people start to move out there. But it was mostly predominantly black, you know, country, rural area. He lived right, like he's my uncle's neighbor, come to find out. Hmm. And so he... You know, I I sent. I was like, if I don't show up at this funeral home, this man done killed me. You know, like, because I'm going to go ahead and ride with him. And he drove me. And what's crazy is that when I got there, he unpacked, took my bags out and everything. My sister met me outside. He prayed for us. He wept. He was like, I'm so sorry for your loss. He was so sensitive. But my mother's stepfather, my grandfather, and my father's, grandfather, his mother's father, they were sanitation workers at the time that Martin Luther King came, went to Memphis, because I'm originally from Memphis. He went to Memphis to basically raise awareness and advocate and support the strikes, you know, the I am a man strikes, uh, the strike of the sanitation workers in Memphis who were, and they were, you know, poorly paid. African-American men. And that's where Martin Luther King was killed. Hmm. That during, when he went to Memphis for that uh, specific purpose. And that's where he was killed. That's where he was slain, fighting alongside, you know, in my, in, if I, you know, imagine, because my mother did tell me that they both, you know, served, they, they did participate in these protests, in their way, like whatever way, you know, whatever capacity they, you know. He, he died, like, in fighting alongside my grandfather and my great-grandfather. Like, mm. for them to be given dignity and honor mm. and a fair wage to care for their families. Yeah, wow. And to be paid as much as a part-time paper route. I mean, Less than. Crazy that that would be so controversial a demand mm -hmm. that, I mean, there were multiple attempts on MLK's life. Absolutely. I mean, he was at one point arrested 
for driving five miles an hour over the speed limit by the police. Yeah. And then they, as they were like driving him out to the country, he was, MLK was afraid that they were going to lynch him. Yeah. Until, until he saw that they weren't, that they were bringing him to the, the prison. Beaten. Yeah. Bloodied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, and all for a demand that like should just, I mean, I'm working this job. Should not be. And I want to feed my wife and children. And we live in a red line district where housing costs 30% more for us than equivalent housing for white people. Right. And yet you're paying us less than your kids' paper out. Yeah. That, that's that's not, radical. That's radical. That's militant. That that's extreme. That's deserving of wiretapping, being followed, mm-hmm. being arrested, being beaten. Being threatened. Like, being threatened. As a result of that wiretapping, the, the FBI sent threats um, telling MLK that they were going to, they literally said, if, if we're going to expose infidelity that we found on the tapes, mm-hmm. if you don't commit suicide. <laughs> the government sent that to MLK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like trying to get him to commit suicide mm-hmm. because they wanted to discredit this movement towards civil rights and, and his legacy. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. We also are on Twitter and Instagram and try to provide a lot of helpful information through those platforms. For $5 a month, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Remember that all the money you give in these next block of 10 episodes will all go to the witness. Included in that, you get to vote for future topics that that we will record each month. Our next episode, we will be discussing Fannie Lou Hamer. We'll leave you with this quote from MLK Jr. himself. Never, never be afraid to do what's right, especially if the well-being of a person or animal is at stake. Society's punishments are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our soul when we look the other way.